90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. Back to school, so that's exciting. And by exciting, I mean exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) I know you've already forgotten that feeling because, you know, you have drudgery of work every day, but I was on a break, John. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So how's it going? Are you, uh, have you had to teach yet? Yep. Yep. Well, this is the, uh, first week of classes. And so we don't go to class on Monday. So I only had one uh, day of each of my classes and I'm teaching my field methods class that I always teach in the spring, but then I'm also teaching earth history. Um, and this is a class that we had gotten rid of in our curriculum, but we brought it back. And so it's a, it's the class you take after you take intro geology. So all of our freshmen are in it and it's super fun. It's like an overview class. I'm really excited. I'm actually co-teaching it, um, with our paleontologist, Dr. Steve Westrup, because I'm not qualified to talk about life and fossils, apparently. So <laughs> they're taking that part away from me. And I'm talking about tectonics and climate. And then he's going to talk about uh, the history of life on Earth. So it should be um, really exciting. I'm glad to do it. And uh, it's something I think that our students have been missing out on. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. I'm yeah, sure. I definitely never had to take that or yeah. anything like it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the more we talk about it on here, the more it becomes clear that, you know, people just don't have a good handle on this stuff. And maybe as senior geologist, you should. So we are reinserting this class, which is in most geology majors, you have to take historical geology or an earth history type class. So we talked about how the earth got here today. That was always fun. Um talking about planetesimals and the moon and all that jazz. So, uh, yeah, it was good, good fun. Cool. So have you, uh, have you sported your don't panic t-shirt yet? (laughs) Of course I have. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Shameless promotion. It's amazing. Yeah. Are you excited about yours? I'm very pleased with the color choice. I I am. I was a little nervous because tea blaster was a new thing, uh, for me. I'd used teespring before and had some mixed results, but I am super excited, and we've seen some traffic in the the Slack room and on Twitter of people uh, tweeting pictures of them in their shirts in various places. So keep it up, because we love to see where you take these things. Mm -hmm. Yep, super spectacular. I'll take mine out in the field, and then I'll probably ruin it and have to buy 10 more. So I'm sure we'll have another one of these drives here pretty soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and, you know, we had some people ask about Patreon earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so there is a Patreon set up for the podcast now. Woohoo. Yay. So we don't have any real, you know, special things. Some Patreon uh, podcast folks do like extra episodes that are only accessible to patrons or something like that. We don't really want to limit what we give away for free, because we do this because we love doing it. Right, exactly. We're not elitists like that. I mean, I'm not. John is sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're just not, uh, we're not trying to make a buck on this. We just want to be able to break even and send out some stickers and pay our hosting bills. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the t-shirts were very successful. So thank you to everybody that bought one. If you didn't buy a t-shirt, there were some people that said, you know, I, I really don't need another t-shirt or that said <laughs> shipping to where I am 
internationally was outrageous. Ah. Uh, so if you're interested in Patreon, you can go on patreon.com. Uh, I'll have it linked in the show notes. Uh, just search for Don't Panic and throw in, you know, a buck a month or whatever you feel comfortable doing if you feel so inclined. It's absolutely not required. Um, even pre-announcement of this, we've had somebody uh, make a very generous gift every month. So we really appreciate it. And uh, it's really humbling to see how much yeah, uh, our fans enjoy the show. Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe that our parents are, you know, t- writing to us under all these pseudonyms. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, mom and dad. Um, and we'll always send stickers out, too. So if you haven't got stickers, whether you're going to support us on Patreon or not, it doesn't matter. Let us know and we'll get those in the mail to you, too, because we've got a new shipment of those as well. And international is fine because... Yep. I, I learned a while back that it is a dollar fifteen to ship a sticker internationally anywhere from the oh, U.S. That is not bad. No. <laughs> so uh, I actually just sent some internationally today. So don't be afraid to write asking for those. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, the next announcement, uh, <laughs> or well, announcement inspired by we had three different listeners email us and say you guys really need to check out this episode of Space Bod with Dr. Carrie Nugent, uh, where she interviewed Dr. Panning about extraterrestrial seismology on Mars. Yeah, and I haven't checked this out yet, so I'm kind of sad about that, but I'm going to do it. But you've already so, listened, right? I listened to it this afternoon, and it was really, really great. Uh, so that gave me an idea, along with that and a request that we've had for more planetary geology type shows, I think it would be a lot of fun to start with the sun and step out and talk about the geology of every planet in the solar system. I'm super excited about this. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, we're both, I mean, John worked for NASA as an intern for a couple of different summers. So obviously, we're both really big space fanatics. And so this is... Super exciting for us, too, because, you know, we like to interview people who are smarter than us, and that's what we need from you guys, right? We need you to help identify some experts in the areas of these terrestrial, well, and the gas giant planets as well, so we can talk about geology of our neighbors. Right, because I can read Wikipedia as well as the next person, (laughs) but I think it would be really fun to talk to somebody that really knows what they're talking about uh, on these planets. And I included the sun because there is such a thing as helioseismology, studying the structure of the sun with seismology. Uh, (laughs) So I think we should start there and work our way out. So if you know of an expert on your favorite planet, or you are the expert and happen (laughs) to be listening, uh, we would really like to hear from you as we're going to start trying to line some of these guests up and start trying to produce that series. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that, you know, if you've got a favorite moon out there and there's some cool stuff going on, I think we can throw those in too, right? We're not just going to limit this to the nine planets. <laughs> right. And, you know, we have to include, you know, the monolith and Europa. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. so I think that was all of the the feedback and uh, setup I had. It's been a little while since we've actually recorded together. We had a couple of interviews that we had been saving because you were gone this week. I was gone the week before that. Yes. 
<laughs> it's been quite hectic. Um, that's for sure. So I was gone because I was out in the field, which was really exciting. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But you were gone because you were at yet another conference, right? But in a different capacity this time than most of the conferences you're used to attending. Yeah, so I was at the American Meteorological Society meeting in okay. Austin this year. Oh, that had to be a nice change from Denver there. Well, so it moves around. Uh, unfortunately, I think the next rotation includes um, Boston and Baltimore, and it's always in January. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, but <laughs> it's oh, uh, terrible. It was a, a great place for the meeting. Uh, you know, got to go down and have my voodoo donut yeah. in the morning for breakfast. And, uh, exactly. yeah. But my, my capacity was different, though I did present there. And though in the past I have worked a booth at a conference, this was the first time where my main job was at a booth. See, you know, I've worked the school booth and a couple of the other booths, like when I used to work at the Sphere Storms Lab, but those were always like two-hour stints. I'm guessing that you were there for a lot longer than that. So pretty much from open to close oh. for three days of the conference, <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Um, so how was it? Was it busy? Were you in a good area? Because this makes a big deal in terms of where your booth is set up as to how much traffic you get and how much interaction you do. Oh, so they give you, uh, at towards the end of the show, they hand out cards that have numbers, uh, which are the number, the order that you can go pick your booth for next year. <gasps> Oh my it's gosh. a very big deal. It's like a booth uh, draft. So like if yeah. you got a crappy one one year, you get like first pick the next year. I don't think it's quite that way, but oh. we were very close to the front. We were by NSF, by UCAR, NCAR, all the community programs. Uh, so we were in a good spot. That's good. But the, you know, at AGU, the exhibit hall opens. I don't ever think of it as being like a big event. Mm-hmm. Uh, at AMS, there were people lined up over an hour before the exhibit hall opened <gasps> to get in. Are you serious? There is a Twitter ring of grad students communicating about where to get the best swag. <gasps> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love this because this is what my friends and I always did, too. I remember coming back with just armloads of free, like, pens and Post-it notes. I think I still have some from AMS conferences, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I haven't bought post-it notes in a while, but yeah. that's the grad student uh, instinct kicking in there. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. I, it takes a while to wean yourself off of that. You're like, no, no, I already have 12 of these. I'm good. <laughs> right. But it uh, it was fascinating because there's a little bit of VIP time uh, before they just open the doors and let anybody in. But when they opened the doors, it was an like it went from pretty quiet in the exhibit hall to a literal stampede. There were people running to some of the booths that they knew they wanted stuff from. Oh my gosh, you were kidding me about this. It was <laughs> slightly terrifying watching just the aisle fill with this solid column of people just scraping swag off the table into their bags. Oh my gosh, I love this so much. So like when the Masters golf tournament opens there's a rule apparently that you can't run you know because you want to get 
to the hole and be close enough to the green so you can see all the big golf stars, right? And so there's this rule that you can't run. And so they have this joke, the guys that man the gates, and they, and they call it the penguin walk, right? Because there's all these old guys that are right up front with their little chairs and they open the gates and then they all like penguin walk as fast as they can because you can't run. <laughs> And so that's what's going through my head right now. It's like all these grad students like penguin walking to <laughs> to pick up like notepads. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was interesting. And what I found more fascinating was we had signed up uh, one of my coworkers and I for some times to man the booth um, to talk about Python projects. Right. Mm-hmm. And we have a couple big screens where we can demo stuff. And I had made like a little sizzle reel of neat animations of events in the last year made with Python. Okay. Uh, we were swamped. Like we didn't get to leave when our time block was <laughs> over. And the next morning in day two of the exhibits, uh, I got there. I think the exhibit hall opened at nine. I don't think it was closer to lunch and we were supposed to be doing Python demos. So I walked in a little after nine with my Hertz donut or my voodoo donut rather, not Hertz. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were people lined up wanting to talk about Python. Oh my gosh. And then you just turned around and quietly slipped out the back. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it was, it was really crazy, Uh, but it was great seeing how many people are using Python, how many people are starting to care about scientific coding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also a little terrifying to hear how many people are using this stuff that we that we write. <laughs> That's just like when we get all this, you know, email from our fans, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm across the across the world, and I listen to your show every week." I I feel that same way, right? That's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> in a good way, <laughs> it, it is. But especially when somebody was like, "Oh yeah, I use it to do all these, you know, calculation X, Y, and Z, and I ran it on you know tens of thousands of data sets." Oh, I wrote that calculation. I am really surprised that that did not just really <laughs> barf in there somewhere. <laughs> They're like, "Man, I hope I did my math right." <laughs> I mean, that that's one of the beautiful things about the way we develop our software is we have a test suite. So we know if we broke something. Mm-hmm, yeah. And though I feel very confident that we're doing things correctly, there's always that one edge case. Yep. And yep. so uh, it was just a little, a little scary. Uh, That's but awesome. it was very satisfying to see. Uh, I did get a chance to go to a couple of talks, not many. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went to some of the talks in the Python symposium and it was really satisfying to watch somebody project a plot on a screen and be talking about it. And you're like, I wrote the code that made that. That is so awesome. Yep, that's pretty sweet. Uh, so there were, there was, a, there was a whole Python symposium that lasted, uh, spanned over parts of two different days. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, yeah, so, and so, oh, go ahead. Well, were most of your, most of your traffic was it students or was it a good mix of all levels of meteorologist it was a good mix that's good um, it was student heavy but there was definitely all levels uh and we we also taught a short course on sunday before the conference started a one day short course uh basically we developed a case study with python so we made all the standard maps that you would make vorticity advection temperature advection isentropic analysis, all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and we had 17 people uh, sign up and pay to go to this short course. And surprisingly, there were not just research academics there. There were people that are commercial, you know, they, they work for uh, some commercial company that's doing energy distribution or something like that. That They say, oh, no, we're using this in our business. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's awesome. That so it was awesome. it was really interesting. So uh, you, you said you did a presentation too. I'm assuming it was Python related on stuff you're working on presentation. Yeah. So I did a poster on the future of MetPy, our Python package. Uh, oh, okay. Sort of trying to talk to people about what's coming in the next six to twelve months, and what are they trying to do? What are they find finding the hangups to be? Because ah, nice. uh, that helps steer where I put effort. Yes. Uh, you know, there were some themes that came out of people saying, man, I really, I really want to do this, or this trips me up every time. It's like, okay, I need to either fix that or make a video about it or something. Uh, I always find this interesting when talking to students about going to conferences. Do you want a poster? Do you want to talk? Everyone's really scared of doing talks because lots of people are scared to talk in front of people, which... Obviously, you can't shut you or me up in front of people, but uh, <laughs> that's really um, a poster session. Like, what's great for a poster session is to get lots of feedback, right? Because a talk, you might get it out to a lot of people, but there's not a lot of time for feedback. And so, you know, something like this, I imagine, worked perfectly in poster form. Well, and the day before, one of my coworkers had given a talk on this is the state of the meteorological Python system right now mm-hmm. and go to this poster tomorrow to talk about the future. So oh. it was a nice setup. Oh, that is super good. Yeah. Did you follow your, your normal postus, poster modus operandi? Uh, not as much this time. Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> so it wasn't strictly based on a movie theme poster color palette. You know you had a lot to work with with Geostorm coming out. I'm very disappointed in you. <laughs> well, that was a basically a black and white color palette. Yeah, that's true. There's lots of fireball red. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I did try a very different design than oh, I've really? ever done before. Mm-hmm. And I also printed it on fabric this time. <gasps> oh, I'm interested to hear about this. <laughs> Why? Uh, because I could fold it up and throw it in my bag and not have a poster tube. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's that's what they say. And did yep. it come out not crinkly and gross? Well, if I'd ironed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> or if I maybe you know hung it in the bathroom when I showered or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Uh, I ended up putting my poster up late one evening. It had been in my bag all day. It still didn't come out that bad. Okay. Uh, I will do it again. It was maybe time and a half as expensive as printing it on paper. And I'm very happy with the fabric. (laughs) (laughs) Poster tubes are, it cannot be overestimated what a pain in the butt they are to carry around. (laughs) Yes. Um, so did that. I also got to go around the exhibit hall. This was some of the same exhibitors that are at AGU every year, some different. And 
the thing that I saw several of this year were really cool sonic anemometers that are coming down in price. Oh, okay. How much coming down? Uh, the cheapest one I saw was 1300 Oh, that's pretty good. And it was three, three, three component, 3D. Oh, okay. Yeah, because these used to be five, $6,000? Uh, more than that, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. But the 1300 is a small, lightweight, uh, mainly designed for like drones and that kind of thing that I found out was actually developed and is manufactured about three miles from my house. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> Field trip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one of the other more interesting ones I saw was it's only two component, but it's different than the normal sonic anemometer, which we should talk about sometime, but it has this resonant cavity uh, oh, method. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they're very rugged and they're heated. So these things are like on top of wind turbines out in the ocean and they survive for years and years. Oh, that is awesome. Uh, Or there's one on top of Mount Washington and they showed all the other instruments iced up and it was just sitting there. (laughs) That's exactly the place I was just going to ask about. I was like, this sounds like Mount Washington level instrumentation. (laughs) It is. Uh, So that was really cool and got to sort of talk shop with some of the engineers and... It was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Um, did you have time to go see any talks? I, I saw a couple of lightning talks, uh, lightning being the topic, not the type of talk. <laughs> yeah, uh, that could be confusing at AMS, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Say, I'm going to lightning talks. Which ones? Yep. Um, <laughs> the lightning ones. <laughs> exactly. So it was, it was interesting. Uh, saw some sort of crowdsource citizen science type talks. Uh, and that was really about all I had time to go to. Uh, one thing I noticed about AMS compared to AGU is it is very, very hallway track heavy. Oh, okay. Uh, so there's a lot more policy type discussions and just things happening in hallway and at tables uh, versus in the scientific talks. That's interesting. I guess I wouldn't have said that but hmm. okay and the talks are also all online which i really appreciate agu should note this yes yes Um, they should the the main frustration and one reason i was really glad the talks were all online is Mm -hmm. a couple of the sessions i went to the chairs were very good about keeping to the schedule if somebody (laughs) didn't show up they waited until the next person was supposed to start um I also went to a few talks where I walked in five minutes early and the talk was ending. Oh, no, 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 no. That was frustrating. uh, Interacting with some of the meeting admin folks online saying, you know, you should really remind your chairs to stick to the session schedule. Mm -hmm. And their response being, well, uh, all the talks are recorded. So there's that. Ha ha ha. (laughs) Was not really thrilling. No. Mm-mm. Well, that is too bad. Um, but, I mean, that happens. Uh, yeah. It, it was a it was a large meeting for the meteorology meetings. It's small compared to AGU, though. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. How many and people the, was it this year? I, I don't know what the final number was. Oh, okay. Off the top of my head. Uh, and then a lot of the universities had receptions, as they do at AGU. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we went between several of them, universities that we've gone and taught at this year, saw some of the folks that uh, were in our workshops and 
had a, a beer and some barbecue with them. Excellent. And OU's reception is famous for being over the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing I will say is nowhere else on the face of the planet will you see a cover band playing in front of a giant jumbotron with scrolling ads for Harris Aerospace and EEC radar. <laughs> oh, good lord. <laughs> so that was an experience. Uh, but really the... The, the lower key receptions where you could sit down and have a conversation with folks were the ones I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So you just surfed receptions? Is that what you're saying? I went, yeah, we went between probably uh, three or four different ones of universities oh. that we've... And we still didn't make it to all the ones that we wanted to, of course. Yeah. Yeah, and that is true. Well, yeah. that's cool. But that was, that was my AMS trip. We were gone for pretty much a week. Uh, between getting ready to do the workshop and career fair and then the actual conference and getting back. Uh, so it was a long week. Uh, sounds like it was super um, productive, though. Oh, absolutely. So how did you spend your uh, time before classes started up again? Oh, man. So it was fairly quiet um, after I got all my grading done, finally, because everyone knows I love that. Um, <laughs> and then visiting family and all that jazz that you're supposed to do. But then my student, one of my graduate students, um, he has to do his field work during the winter time because the field area is too hot in the summer. And so the field area, which is at the southern end of Lake Mojave, which is right in northwest Arizona, southernmost part of Nevada, sort of, it's on the Arizona side, but right, the Arizona-Nevada border is right through the middle of the lake. So it's like an hour and a half, two hours south of Vegas. Okay, yeah. Okay, so right there. And it's just burning hot in the summer, so you can't do that. And it's all primitive camping so he was out camping for 10 days he and his field assistant and I came out for four or five days to help them out too and it was really cool um the place that they're working on is down this wash and so you have to have a four-wheel drive vehicle to access it so that was exciting number one and it takes over an hour to drive to the field area on a four-wheel drive road terrible wow. yeah <laughs> yeah it's so stressful like that's just stressful in general right um and so that took a while to get down to but what he's working on is he is looking at these miocene pliocene pleistocene so really recent deposits and through this area during this time so the colorado river runs through it right now and so there's a big question about when the colorado river got there and some of these deposits should hold the key to when the Colorado River went through this area. So that's one question. Um, the other question is, what kind of environment was this in the first place? Um, some people say that it was a whole series of lakes, kind of like what it is today, that were dammed up naturally. And these lakes just would fill up and then spill over the natural dams and then fill up another lake. So fill and spill lakes. Or was it an estuary? Meaning that the ocean water came up that area and that's where you got all these deposits was from ocean water, not from terrestrial, you know, lake water. 
Um, so there's two sort of questions that have been going on from this area for quite a long time. And we've just carved out a tiny little part of it to start answering questions about that little area that he's working on. Okay, so are you going to tackle this with the, the paleomagnetic tool belt? Well, or? of course. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a little both actually because this area has a bunch of beds that haven't been formally described. And so my student got to work with the USGS last year based out of Flagstaff, Arizona. And this was some of the stuff he worked on there. And so this is kind of an extension of it. Um so he's describing these beds that haven't been described before. So it's a stratigraphy study, which takes a lot of time and a lot of detail and he is the perfect person for that kind of detail. Um, so that's really good. So he's got, uh, uh, how many? It's 40-ish meters of section that he described, like, on the decimeter scale. So that was a while. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that was a while. And then also, like I said before, we're trying to figure out when the Colorado River entered this area. So there are certain sediments that you know are Colorado River sediments, and they're throughout this section. And so what we're going to do is we've sampled the section on half-meter spacing, maybe. Yeah, probably about half-meter spacing. And we're going to look at the polarity of those rocks. So that's a thing called magnetostratigraphy, is we look and see if the polarity of the rocks, which, you know, Earth has this magnetic field, right? And in the northern hemisphere, the magnetic field right now is down. It's not always down. Sometimes it's up. And that polarity reversals, you can compare that to known time periods. And so you can see that pattern of reversals and normal times and say, oh, well, these rocks match up to this pattern, so therefore they are this age. Hmm. So do you have to do the, you don't have to do the full DMAG sequence like you normally would with paleomagnetism then, right? Uh, I mean, you don't have to. And a lot of, because these have to be primary magnetizations, it's not going to really help you if it's a secondary magnetization. So therefore, we're really looking at a lot of um, magnetite here. And so you can do this thing called alternating field demagnetization. And that just means that you can analyze these samples really quick, like 40 minutes a sample. Yeah. So considering that you've got, what, probably 80 samples or so? Yes. Yeah, at least. Uh-huh. And a normal paleomagnetic thermal run takes weeks. Uh-huh. <laughs> For 50 samples. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're still looking at probably six to eight hours of the machine running yes yeah to that's, be able to do this. that's absolutely true um and you know we've got extra samples to do all kinds of other things too uh, you can see where all these big they're just these huge really high energy beds it's really actually unbelievable the size of some of these boulders that these outwash fans so these big fluvial complexes deposited here and there's boulders the size of, you know, your head, then tiny little ones, and then ones the size of cars. They're huge. And so it's a lot of energy. It's a lot of different rocks there. And um, distributed within here are a lot of volcanics that were going on at the time, too. Um, and the nice thing about volcanics is they spew off a lot of ash. And so we can, we've actually sampled a whole bunch of ashes in the area to get some absolute age dates. 
because you kind of need that to anchor your paleomagnetic time scale. You have to have something with an absolute age. And uh, so we gather a lot of ashes as well. And the volcanic rocks were just beautiful in this area. And so do you do a chemical analysis on those ashes? Or oh, what's so, <laughs> so this is really scary, actually. <laughs> so our colleagues at the USGS, who I'm sure we should have on here, actually, uh, we're talking about how they do this analysis. And you gather an ash, and you're looking for the sanidine, so this mineral sanidine in there. And in order to extract the sanidine from this ash bed, you have to first grind it all up, wash it all off, and then you have to get rid of glass because there's a lot of volcanic glass in ashes. And to do that, you have to wash your samples with hydrofluoric acid. And that's really nasty stuff. It's super scary. <laughs> yeah, like we use hydrochloric acid all the time, and that's not a big deal at all. I mean, all acid is a big deal, but... Um, and we're talking about really dilute HF, like 5% or something, but it is still terrifying. And both my student and I are like, nope, we don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> so luckily, this is something you can pay someone else to take on all that um, scariness. So you can actually just have the ash and say, here's my ash. And there's a lot of prep, obviously, involved with that, but it's not too long. And then they take the sanidine and they do argon-argon dating on it to get an absolute age of it. Okay, so radioactive decay process is yep. ultimately what you're using. Right. Okay. Yep, exactly. But just washing off all the goodies that you got with the volcanics takes a while. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> and it's super scary. So, yeah, we're probably going to pay uh, pay to get that done. Um, but it was it was really great. You know, we were primitive camping. It was unbelievable, unbelievably beautiful. The weather was Wonderful, except the one day it rained, and it hadn't rained in like 150 days out there. <laughs> and of course, the one day it decides to rain is the day we're out in the field. <laughs> um, and I actually made my students leave because we're down in a wash, right? And so the entire road is basically, you know, dry riverbed. And right. so, <laughs> and it wasn't just a little rain. It was supposed to be a big all day rain. This is the storm that dumped a whole lot of snow out in the Sierras. And then it came through. And so it was the day I was flying out. We all left really early. I made my students get out of the wash for safety, which was great because it turns out that the wash did, it didn't fill up and flood, but there was a lot of water down there. And then it wound up, I had your luck, John. I blame you <laughs> just <laughs> oh, knowing, no. knowing you for this. So it hasn't rained in months and months. And this rain shuts down all of the Las Vegas airport. <laughs> My flight got canceled three times <laughs> during the day. That sounds about right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So after 12 hours in the airport, I said, I'm not going to trust that you say we're estimated to leave tonight. Just book me tomorrow and I'm going to go get a hotel, which totally stunk because this consumer electronics show was in Las Vegas. And so there were no hotel rooms. I think you mean it was awesome because the CES show was in Las Vegas. <laughs> That is, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a big travel cluster that I blame on your luck rubbing off on me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. So. Yeah, yeah. Rain in the desert, man. It shut down everything. It was crazy. Um, but besides that, the weather was beautiful. Like, we had bighorn sheep walking through camp. Um, and in this area, if anyone is familiar with it, there's a whole bunch of wild burrows. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're left over from some mine that brought them in and then let them all go when the mine went bad because there's all kinds of ore deposits out here. And so there are wild burrows through the canyons. And my graduate student, the last time he was out there, he actually got charged by one. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he said they're they're real short, um, but they come at you. And he said he, he just held out his rock hammer. Like, he didn't swing it or anything. He said he just held it out at arm's length, and the burrow would charge right up to the rock hammer and stick his head on it. <laughs> like, just, you know, just like, tink. And then he'd back up, and he'd do it again. So apparently they're... They're quite fun to be around, but we didn't see any of those. But the bighorn sheep were there, and uh, everything else was not because it was pretty cold. So, yeah, yeah, but uh, it was hmm. uh, quite exciting. Well, nice. Uh, yeah. Now that we're now that we're both back from travel, we can get <sighs> back to work here. <sighs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but part of our work on this show, which is always the most fun part, is coming up, right? Yeah, so I think that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Fun Paper Friday. (laughs) Man, you pulled another beauty. This one is so wonderful. Yeah, so this time we still have a few listener fun papers to get to. Uh, I was missing going digging for fun papers, to be honest. I know. It's been a long time. Uh, <laughs> so so I went digging and found a paper from your favorite source, the BMJ, <laughs> British Medical Journal. How oh. fast does the Grim Reaper walk? Receiver operating characteristics, curve analysis in healthy men aged 70 and over. This was so great. <laughs> I saw that it was a BMJ article, and I obviously got really excited, but I got even more excited to read this. Um, so as you may or may not remember, the best thing about these BMJ articles is in the abstract. It points out everything, the objective, design, participants, outcomes, and everything. And the objective is simple, to determine the speed at which the Grim Reaper, or death, walks. (laughs) (laughs) And I know we go on about it, but this really is the best thing about this journal, that you can read these three or four paragraphs, and you know if you want to read the rest of the paper. Exactly. I mean, and this is a short paper. You should totally go read it. But yes, this is a fantastic way to run an, an abstract. It's so great. Um, so <laughs> basically, this looked at data from a study that had already been done, the Concord Health and Aging in Men Project, which was uh, 1,705 men aged 70 or over. And they followed a whole bunch of health things about them but one of those was how quickly they walked what was it six meters i think it was yeah so they did six meters two time trials and they took the faster of the two and so that was some of the data that was collected and that's what was used for this study um for the purpose of seeing if there is a correlation between walking speed and mortality and it turns out there kind of is Well, and what was fascinating was there were other studies about walking speed and mortality, but of course, nobody had tried to tie it to uh, the speed of the Grim Reaper, which in the introduction, there are four citations for the Grim Reaper being a well-known mythological and literary figure. There are. And so for you fellow nerds out there, since I know John doesn't read fiction, he will not appreciate that most of these citations are for Terry Pratchett books. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I got so excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So what they ended up doing was this analysis uh, called receiver operating characteristics or rock curves. And which, I don't know anything about this stuff. Yeah. So it's not common in the geosciences from what I've seen anyway. Okay. Uh, I'm sure somebody's going to say, no, in my thing in geosciences, it's very common. Uh, well. Uh, but basically what you're doing is you're plotting the amount of true positives against the amount of false negatives. Okay. And you get this curve. The more the curve is up into the left side of the graph, the more power your study had. Okay, this sounds definitely like something in meteorology that you would use when you're talking about algorithms and detection stuff, right? Right, so predictive power of weather models and that kind of thing, definitely. Okay, yep, that Um, makes sense. And they somehow ended up translating the area under the curve to the walking speed, Mm -hmm. which without really digging into rock curves, I think it has something to do with the inflection point of the rock curve. Right, yeah. Uh, But they, they find a relatively strong uh, correlation that about 0.82 meters per second, so three kilometers an hour, is once you reach that speed, the Grim Reaper catches up to you. (laughs) So the point was that these men in this study, if you were a fast walker, essentially, and then over time when they followed up on them, the people who were fast walkers didn't die as quickly during the duration of the study, right? Or didn't die at all during the duration of this study. And so therefore the authors could conclude that, oh, well, there has to be a maximum walking or a walking speed, you know, that separates these two populations of men who have died and men who are still alive. And therefore that walking speed must be the Grim Reaper's, maximum operating speed essentially well and they do note that this is the grim reaper's speed while working yes we know nothing (laughs) about the grim reaper's speed at leisure oh but it also said that you can throw that out because who cares about him when he's not working right true uh they also found that if you walked at 1.36 meters a second which is about three miles an hour or five kilometers an hour uh that there were no deaths so that is sort of the you're definitely outrunning the grim reaper speed and then uh between you know 0.82 and one point low numbers uh you became more and more likely as you went to the lower end of that depends on if he was having a good day and got his sleep or not right exactly um, so, right, so no men with walking speeds of 1.36 meters per second or greater had contact with death, as they say in here. Um, this is so fantastic. Um, but it, it, and I thought this was an interesting stat, not that it necessarily came out of this, but this gait speed versus mortality was independent of lots of different things. Like, they're using this study from these men in Australia, but it's not necessarily, or these studies have been done on other people too. And so they say, 
This indicates that the preferred walking speed of the Grim Reaper while collecting souls is relatively constant, irrespective of people's geographical location, sex, or ethnic background. Right. Uh, (laughs) They also note that some of the limitations of the study were that the Grim Reaper was not a participant as he was not eligible, as the criteria to be eligible for this were to be living in specific (laughs) suburbs in inner western Sydney. And therefore, since he's not living, he was not eligible to participate. That's right, exactly. Um, <laughs> so it says that um, high-quality scientific research linking the Grim Reaper to mortality is limited, <laughs> despite extensive anecdotal evidence attesting his important role in death. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that. So that's another limitation is that this is just a you know assumed thing that we culturally think that the Grim Reaper is going to get us. <laughs> Well, and they also say they're unable to collect data on the presence of resources that have been reported as enabling people to avoid death, such as invisibility cloaks, <laughs> resurrection stones, and elder wands, collectively known as the Deathly Hallows. <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. Uh, they also cite some Terry Pratchett um, <laughs> books in here, too, about ways to cheat death as well. Uh Right, and they also came up with their own scale, the CTATBS scale, which I'm going to leave that as an exercise to the reader to go look that up in the final page of this paper. CCATBS scale. It is beautiful. Yes. <laughs> oh, this is great. Um, so one of the things that also comes out of this paper, which you also have to go look up, it's a web extra on here, is... Um, the author says, furthermore, as singing when feeling down is often considered like a health talisman, studies could test the possibility of using a song as a magical incantation to ward off death. And did you go to the Web Extra on this one? I sure did. <laughs> How could I, I not? I did not go to the Web Extra, so I'm very curious. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to have to go look that up now. So the author has... <laughs> rewritten the words and you sing it to the Bee Gees song Stayin' Alive. <laughs> and it is All right. a totally new version of Stayin' Alive based on this sort of you need to walk fast to <laughs> to outwalk <laughs> the Grim Reaper. <laughs> yeah, this was an excellent paper. <laughs> right. Uh, so, and there are only two figures. One's the rock curve and the other is, uh, some clip art of the Grim Reaper <laughs> chasing somebody. Yes, it's beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. And definitely go check out his rendition of Staying Alive. It is pretty great. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's one of the things the study added as well. Older men wishing to outrun the Grim Reaper should maintain walking speeds above 1.36 meters per second. Yes. <laughs> So if you would like to report your walking speed to us and see where you fall on the rock curve or have a fun paper that you would like to suggest or any feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, email us your ways to cheat death show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, also, let us know where you're wearing those T-shirts, man. You can do that on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Or come see us in the Slack channel, uh, Software Underground, and we're on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember... Don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funders.